required to uh, for self-knowledge. These are preparatory disciplines. This moral inventory is a preparatory discipline to uh, ensure that your mind is uh, steady and still and capable of uh, understanding and uh, retaining knowledge. It's easy, often easy to understand it when your mind is sattvic, but you need to be able to retain this knowledge when your mind is tamasic and rajasic. If you're, huh? You get in a situation like this, and, and uh, we create the sattva. That's my job. My job is to create the sattva and to keep your mind on topic because my mind is very very disciplined and I can keep mine on topic and if, and if you're listening yours will stay on topic and, this, and the environment's sattvic so it's easy enough to understand here but when you walk out the door uh, and the rajas comes I mean, you'll even notice after a break here how there'll be an outbreak of rajas. Huh? You know, some, some people will just sit and stay in the sattva and stay in the silence and, and contemplate. But most everybody can't wait to get outside and start yakking. Huh? That means what? The, the rajas was repressed here. Huh? But the rajas didn't go away. It was repressed. So when, when you're out of this environment, immediately the rajas comes up and you, your mind starts thinking like crazy. And then you, then, you know, then that, that, those thoughts obscure the sattva and the knowledge goes and the memory doesn't work and the knowledge goes. Same with Tama Guna. So, you know, so these, uh, if once these values are all properly assimilated, in other words, once you're, you've got these these good values in place and they're firm, then your mind will stay sattvic automatically. There'll be enough sattva not only you know to to, to 
Binefsat was so that the memory of who you are, the, the thought of who you are, will be in your mind all the time. And then eventually, because it just becomes a, a natural vritti, it will sink into the unconscious and leave you just clear. But that knowledge will be available whenever it's necessary. Understand? This is, this is what discipline does. Why a, 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 a devotee is a disciplined person. People don't think of bhakti yoga as discipline. Because they basically just like into the rituals and so forth and so on. But actually, bhakti yoga is a very disciplined person because you got your your love will stay flowing to God if you're able to uh, think of God all the time. Because God's the most beautiful thing to think of. God is beautiful. So when you think of God, your mind modifies to love, to beauty, to peace. And you're happy. So these, this, uh, you know, you may you may understand who you are, but unless your values are fully assimilated, the Thomas and Rogers will take away that knowledge from you on a moment to moment or daily basis. So therefore, what? Keep analyzing your values, and when there is a break. Uh, in your in your knowledge and your experience of yourself as as bliss as love, in other words, when you're not loving, then that's a sign that you got some value needs to be assimilated. You need to you need to work on that, and that often involves you know changing your life, your lifestyle somehow, because these these uh, energies, Rajas, Thomas, and Sattva, they get you know, they get embedded as your lifestyle in a practical way. They're embedded in your life. In other words, they're the determinants of what kind of lifestyle you have. So if you have a very rajasic lifestyle, that means your mind's very rajasic. That's all. If you have a tamasic lifestyle, it means your mind's tamasic. Because the lifestyle will reflect your mind, your mind, your nature of your mind. As 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 above, so below. What's ever up here is going to show up down here. You have no choice about it. It's a cause and effect relationship. So we can tell if a person's really busy and rajasic here and disturbed. Their mind is like their life is like hopping around and really busy. It means there's a predominance of rajas in the in their unconscious. It's not rocket science. <laughs> inference is a valid means of knowledge, isn't it? We determine that inference is a valid means of knowledge. You know, that's the rearview mirror. The rearview mirror is inference. Right? You don't see what's in your unconscious, but you know what's in your unconscious because you see what the effect is. And you reason from the effect back to the cause. It's a, it's a straightforward a means of knowledge actually it's quite quite simple so uh, we uh, where, where do we stop we were mastery of mind weren't we we were talking about those four those four types of thinking <clears throat> to, to make it clear 
so that you can look at your, you can analyze your, the state of mind you're in. Are you, are you in an impulsive state? Reactive impulsive state. You shouldn't be reactive, you should be active. You can, uh, which means before you act, you should think about it. Reactive people don't think about it. They just react. They just go with the thought that the situation produces in them at the moment. And, and, and that thought may, you know, that thought should be examined. I should look at that thought and see whether reacting to that, the, my immediate reaction to that thought is a beneficial reaction for me in light of my goal, which is always what? Peace of mind and serving the situation, i.e., is my response to that particular situation appropriate for me and for the situation? I should consider the situation first, if I can, but I also should consider my goal, what it is. And my goal always, in every situation, is to what? Resolve the situation peacefully so that my mind does there's no karmic drag from the situation. In other words, the agitation from the situation doesn't leave the situation itself. It stays right with the situation, and then it's gone. So you walk away clear. You don't have to deal with that issue again. So that this deliberate thinking is what is the is just observing your mind, stepping back. Huh? It just takes a second. You just step back and think about it before you act. You know what? You don't have to say anything instantly in any situation. You can pause, collect your thoughts, and consider what's going to come out of your mind, and you can edit your thoughts uh, as they come up so that uh, the information is appropriate, kind, timely, uh, and credible. It should be like that. And then you won't have problems in the, in the world. It's just this impulsive, uh, this need to like respond immediately uh, that's a problem. So, our mechanical thinking. Catch yourself in a, in a mechanical loop. Uh, it's boring thinking. It's tiresome. It's tomasic. You just must. And then deliberate thinking is what we're talking about. It's like deliberately stopping, looking at what the situation is, and creating a response that's appropriate, that's deliberate. And if you have, if you're looking at it through the Vedanta filter, then, yeah, this this applies to a worldly samsara too. But since we're not, we're trying to get out of samsara, we would use the Vedanta uh, paradigm, the Vedanta teaching, uh, to uh, as a template for our response. So we would check with this, well, the, with the teaching. <coughs> to see if the, the 
attitude and the action itself was in harmony with the scripture and then deliver the your statement do your action and once that deliberate thinking becomes uh, you have a strong vasana for that then it becomes unconscious and your response is spontaneous then you don't have to deliberately think in every situation. You spontaneously respond to the situation from the point, from Ishwara's point of view. That means your satya mitya vasana is uh, permanent, just just like your name. Your name is a vasana. Now, why don't you have to say your name every five minutes? Why can you, like you, you could, you could say, for example, be in a plane crash and land on a desert island and, and be there alone for like 20 years living on coconuts and, or, or a tropical island, living on coconuts and fish for 20 years. And then you, one day somebody saw your little smoke fire and they thought there must be somebody living on that uninhabited island. So they sent a rescue crew. And the rescue crews came and said, hi, we're here to rescue. What's your name? Now, will you, will you not know your name? You never said your name for 20 years. You never, yeah? For 20 years, you never said it once. You never practiced your name at all. But uh, your name will pop right out, won't it? Huh? My name is Friday. Huh? My name is Friday. My name is Friday, yeah. <laughs> so this is what we need. The knowledge needn't be in the forefront of your mind all the time. Actually, the for your the forefront of your mind is is, is meant to be used for transactions. So you want meaning you want a clear mind for your transactions. <coughs> but yeah, and that should be backed by the knowledge of your identity. So that you don't, you know, people, these people wandering around saying, I'm a self every five minutes. That means what? Their knowledge isn't firm because they have to keep repeating it to themselves or to others. Mostly they say it to others. It's fine to say it to yourself, but if you find it, if you feel compelled to say it to others, then you got a self-esteem problem. Yeah. All right? You, uh, if, if you need to tell other people and, and telegraph your enlightenment to other people, then you have low self-esteem. You know, even though other people may be impressed by it, uh, it just means the knowledge isn't firm and you're trying to remind yourself uh, so, so these values are absolutely essential for, for the process of Vedanta, for Vedanta sadhana. Vedanta is a pathless path. We, uh, it's, it's, pathless means what? There's no sadhana because knowledge doesn't take any time, does it? If you're qualified and you hear the teaching, uh, the enlightenment's instant. There's no path. The knowledge, the knowledge takes away the ignorance and you arrive at your destination instantly. 
if you're qualified. If you're not qualified, then what? Then there's a process. Then it's a path. So we call that Vedanta, sadhana. Sadhana means practice or path, the practice of knowledge. So this, this value analysis is part of the Vedanta sadhana, the Vedanta path. Okay. And you can't skip it. Otherwise, uh, otherwise what will happen, and this happens all the time, you'll, you'll say you're enlightened, and maybe you are, and maybe you aren't, but one day, one fine day, the world uh-huh, will, you know, abuse you and throw you out and, and, uh, and insult you and refuse to accept you. Why? Because even though you're enlightened, you're, those values, you, your value system was never properly investigated. And what? And you behaved like you weren't enlightened. You behaved like a greedy, self-centered person. That's what's exactly what you see in the spiritual world. All these gurus going for money, huh? Or sex, you know, etc. Whatever, power <coughs> or love. <coughs> Some of them are needy as hell, and they collect people uh, and, and manipulate people with their love because they need to get people to love them. So they know if they love you, you're forced to love them back and they hold you with their love and that may feel good to you but uh, and it may feel good to the person but the, that's doing it the guru that's doing it uh, but it's not uh, freedom at all you know the women gurus fall into this one the men tend to fall into the into the power problem the sex problem and the money problem, but the women tend to fall into the love problem. It's just a, it's not a hard and fast rule, but <laughs> just a, that's just from my own experience. Yes, Georg. I was wondering if um, we don't assimilate the values, does Vedanta give us only intellectual satisfaction? But with no, 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 no. When a value is assimilated, no, you missed the point. Uh, an, an intellectually assimilated value gives you emotional satisfaction, experiential satisfaction. This is not, Vedanta is not intellectual. You got this no, I haven't finished my sentence actually. Okay. Uh, and if we assimilate the values, Vedanta turns into a spiritual satisfaction. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, spiritual or emotional satisfaction. That's correct. But first part of your statement, that's what a lot of people believe, is that Vedanta is only intellectual. Uh, because they don't want they don't want to discipline their minds to think about themselves. They just want the ex experience of, be of satisfaction. They just want to feel good, in other words. Mm -hmm. But unless your values, these values are assimilated, you won't feel good. <laughs> and as soon as you assimilate these values, then you get spiritual or emotional satisfaction. You love yourself and other people love you. As soon as these values are. Because Dharma is universal and these are all Dharmic values. And so Dharma is built into everyone. 
and the Dharma in that person appreciates the Dharma in you. And so love happens. Conflict goes away. The nature of Dharma is what? Dharma is non-dual. That means what? It's conflict-free. Duality means conflict. So we have to get rid of the values that are what? Are enhancing our sense of duality. Huh? And get our minds what? Filled with the, uh, the Dharmic values, which what? Produce harmony. Harmony is a, is a consequence of what? Non-dual knowledge and what? Non-dual knowledge is carried in my what? In my value system, in these sattvic values that he's talking about here, that the Gita is talking about. Be sure to read the read, get both the books, the the uh, not just the Yoga of Love, but but the three gunas because you'll get a complete list of values with those two. And I'm not sure when we'll have the Value of Values book out. Most of it's written now. We just need a little bit of work on it. So uh, this values inventory is really, really super important. The Gita spends a lot of time on it. And we made it simple so you don't have to read the whole Gita. <laughs> if you're just interested in the values part. We will have, we'll have a, a, a commentary on the Gita's by Rory, who is one of my guys, one of my teachers. It's really good. He wrote it as, as, almost as well as I could write it, in some, in some ways better. And, um, and we have the Carbondale Gita series, which is every verse. So, when you get around that, so I recommend uh, that Gita series also. We've uh, most of most of this stuff is reduced up from, from uh, thirty to fifty percent from the website price for seminar participants. So don't be afraid to pick it up. If you don't have the money, you can take it and, and pay on the on online or little by little whatever it is if you don't if you you know if you're hard up for money you can just give me a little bit every month until it's paid off because it's important that you get this information and uh, you keep studying this uh, carefully that's a the big message is every day this is a daily practice you got to build that spiritual vasana up <clears throat> And, and just thinking you're spiritual and saying, I'll get to it tomorrow, or I'm too busy right now, that, that, that huh, doesn't work. Every single day, yeah, you're at it. It should be built in. I got it in when I was with Swamiji, because we started, we started Vedanta Sadhana about four in the morning. And it went till 11 at night. <laughs> Every day. There were no weekends off. There was nothing. Every single day from 4 in the morning till 11 at night. Huh? Wherever we were, and we traveled around the world to all these different countries. It was always exactly the same every day. Well, you can imagine how quickly, uh, how focused your mind gets and how, you know, 
how quickly you assimilate all of these teachings. It doesn't take long at all. Whereas if you, you know, it's little by little, it's fine. You have to be little by little if you live in the world. It, it has to be that way. But every day if you're consistent, soon it, it, it starts to make a huge difference. And then your life will simplify the more, huh? He's going to say here, what did we just, didn't we have this value? That's coming up. Anyway, well, anyway, value values. Let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, unfold the rest of these values. Um, dispassion towards sense objects. You should have a value for what? Indifference toward sense objects. That would be what? Uh, sense objects. What isn't a sense object? Huh? Music. It's lovely to have music, but what you can get totally obsessed with music, huh? with sound. This, 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 this is the most subtle instrument, your ears. Huh? In fact, Vedanta is a sound means of knowledge. It's a vibration. Vibrational means of knowledge. So sound is a tremendous, is the most powerful sense organ. And gives you the most pleasure and immediately and directly. And in fact, what you you see, yes, sir. What? So this uh, food. The, when, when societies get wealthy, you get a class of people called foodies. You know, do you have foodies in, in Germany? Yeah. Uh, well, you got nothing, you, you know, you want to see foodies go to America. My God, there's millions of people who, who, who only live to eat. Huh? That's all they think about. Their whole life is nothing but food. Their Instagrams are just pictures of food. They, huh? Etc. 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 That's all they talk about, and that's all they do is eat food. Uh, sex, the porn industry. Oh my God. So they're not saying there's anything wrong with any, uh, with any one of these sensual pursuits. Huh? We're not saying, huh? but I need to. Have, but my attitude should be ho hum. I can take it or leave it. That's what dispassion means. It should not be an obsession. If you want an obsession, be a Vedanta obsessive. That, huh? That'll work, because that obsession will disappear when you what? When you realize who you are, and it'll become just a pleasure. So, huh? The more obsessive you are about your sadhana, the better. <laughs> but the more the more obsessive you are about your sense pleasures, uh, the more uh, attached or disturbed your mind is going to be. That's all. So, a renunciation. This fits right in. Austerity. <clears throat> we talked about this earlier. Is what? It's a spirit. It's an eagerness to get rid of things and to live simply. To be huh, austere, minimalism. Hmm? 
Well, just look around your house. Look around your apartment. Is it cluttered with all kinds of stuff? There are little <clears throat> knickknacks everywhere all around the place. Are all the drawers full of shit and the closet's full of shit? You open a drawer, a closet, and everything falls out on you. You go, you go to your garage and you can't park your car in it. I've got friends, rich, rich friends, and they have a three-car garage and they can't get their cars in it because there's so much stuff. So they have to build build an extra garage for their cars and then those that spills up and then they take the stuff to a storage room huh is that is that how it is is your clothes closet you know full if you got 50 shirts and 60 pairs of pants and like a hundred shoes and 27 handbags Huh? I, I've got one pair of shoes and one pair of sandals. I have uh, four pairs of pants uh, and about seven shirts. And that's it. And three pairs of underwear and four t-shirts. Everything, uh, everything I have will fit in a suitcase. Even when I have living in my house in Spain. Because what's the use? It just means what? I, I need all that stuff because why? Why? You don't need it. Just what you need, bare minimum. You may put it aside, but it's actually there in your unconscious. You have no idea how stuff accumulates, even in your body. You have no idea how much stuff is accumulated in your body. You do a cleanse, there's some kind of cleanses, you will not believe the kind of stuff that shit that's stored in your body, not just shit, but all kinds of other stuff that you don't need, way unnecessary. This, this, this tendency to hoard and to possess things is what? It's born out of insecurity. <clears throat> you don't need it. Learn to live without it. You'll be, you honestly, you think you can't live without it, but you'll be happier without it, I tell you. After a while, you'll realize, oh my God, there's a great weight off my mind. All that stuff is gone. I don't have to think about it either consciously or subconsciously. So uh, an austere, simple lifestyle, you know, just a nice clean room with a couple of pieces of spiritual art in your altar. And your bed should be just simple. Uh, in Buddhism, you're not supposed to sleep on a high bed. They got all these, you know, there are reasons for all this stuff. It's just about simplification and how your life actually affects what your state of mind. So, spirit of austerity and renunciation, absence of egoism. Now, what we're this this value doesn't isn't talking about the complete dis, detachment from the ego that comes when you know who you are. Because this is not about self self realization. What is this? This is just a simple, a simple recognition of the difference between myself and my ego. The difference between the reflected self and the real self. That's all. Because I've got a big confusion. And that, that, what does that involve? That, that involves monitoring the word I. Because the word I can, refer, uh, can easily refer to the reflected self, not to the real self. We pointed out 
that I, the word I, actually only applies to the, the real self. Why? Because there only is one self, in fact. But if you're under the spell of Maya, you'll think that the, the reflected self huh, is the real self. Huh? And that's only because you don't recognize <laughs> that, that what your ego is. Your ego means your separate self or your reflected self, your secondary self your non-essential self. It's because you just don't recognize the difference. So you should have a value for uh, for, uh, uh, for introspection, i.e. listening to yourself uh, uh, when, you, when you're speaking and when you're thinking. I, my my uh, meditation, I, I got a great meditation. It's a simple one. You know, normally when you're, normally when you're sp speaking, you're not listening to yourself speak. You're too busy. You're too busy one delivering the information and paying attention to the next thought because you want to hold the attention of the other person because you just love talking. Yeah. So, huh? So you really aren't, huh? You're really not self-aware at that time when you're speaking. So this sudden is, is you take your ears like this, you grab them right, good and firm, you stretch them way out. And then you pull them around in front like this. And then you turn your ears and pull them close to your mouth. So that what? So that everything you say goes in your ears and comes back to your mind as you speak. And then as the words print out across the screen of your reflected consciousness, huh, you, you, you edit or monitor for the word I. And then whenever the word I comes up, you hit the pause button. There's pause, huh? Hit pause, and then you ask yourself, what eye is that? That's all you need. That's just what we're trying to do. What eye is speaking here? Is that the self speaking, or is that my ego speaking? What's, what's doing the speaking here? And once you're clear about what, then you press the play button, huh? and then you let yourself rattle on until the next, next time the word I comes up, and then you hit the pause button, and then, yeah, like that. So you keep monitoring the eye over and over and over again until it's very clear which is the ego self and which is the real self. Because sometimes the real self is speaking. <laughs> sometimes the ego self is speaking. The ego self is the real self, but uh, the real self is diluted, and so it thinks it's an ego self. So you've got to make that distinction there. So I should have a value for that. Which means what? Keeping track of myself, my, my speech. <clears throat> it's really funny how you don't listen to yourself when you speak. Huh? <laughs> if you did, you'd be really embarrassed. Huh? You'd be really embarrassed by the stuff you're saying. But you're not embarrassed because you're not listening. <laughs> And if you, if this is, oh, this is another deliberate, this is just a, another technique for what? Developing a deliberate approach to your mind. So the sadhana would be to try to speak, not only to observe, but to choose to speak from yourself. Yeah, to to, absolutely. Yourself. Yeah, absolutely. 
and to know now you can't always you can't always do that but once you get once you get sattvic you can catch yourself instantly when when huh now i will speak as the ego uh purposely a bit i will then i'll stop and say at, speaking as the ego i'll speak as the ego and then i'll say speaking as the ego it means what i'm not the ego huh or I'll just edit what I said. I'll say, this is how the ego would speak it, and this is how the self would see it. Understand? Because I'm aware of my of, of my ego. My ego is an object. It's like a dog on a leash out in front. It's never behind me. My ego, huh? It's never behind me. It can't get around behind me. I'm behind, always behind it. So I always see where it's going. And I let it do what it wants to do. Huh? But I've got a short leash on it. I, I jerk its little chain and make it come back when it misbehaves. Or when it looks like it's going to get into trouble, I what? I jerk it back. <coughs> we would be speaking less too. Huh? Which are the important things we need to say. I yeah, think. you will be speaking less. Oh. In fact, they got this notion. There's this uh, notion in the spiritual world. It's, it's, it's a little bit of truth to it. He who says doesn't know, and he who knows doesn't say. Yeah. Huh? Now that's not necessarily true, but it's a good uh, it's a good soundbite, uh, something to think about. Just speak what's is essential. Don't you don't need to throw in a whole lot of gratuitous statements uh, uh, about this and that to draw attention to yourself. When you feel yourself trying, and you feel yourself wanting attention, you know. When, in other words, when people start paying attention, start listening to you, then you just start speaking. You say, "Oh, they love me. I'll just keep speaking because they keep the love going." Uh, well, they should love you when you're not speaking, also. <laughs> so you learn how to what? Be silent, because your energy, your your love should be felt. Whether you're speaking or not, people should feel your presence. Your presence is peace or love. Understand? You say people have a presence, he or she has a presence. Well, that's the, that's the self manifest in that person's mind, and you'll feel it because they're what? Because their mind is steady, charismatic people, and so forth. It's like applying minimalism to our. Yeah, yeah. Minimalism's a great word. Less is more. That's that's my mantra. I've been chanting less is more since I was age 25. I started living out of a van. Huh? Huh? I started uh, just everything. I even had the money not to, to live so simply, but I chose to live. I have a friend who's who's a um, I don't know. He's got a two or three hundred million dollars, and and he has nothing. He has one suitcase, and he lives in a motel with nothing on the wall, and and he's got two one pair two pairs of jeans. He's worth several, he's worth several hundred million dollars. He's and he doesn't have he doesn't want to talk to people. <laughs> you think huh, what? <clears throat> No, he's smart. He's not screwed up mentally. He just, he's, you know, he, the rest of his family, they're all, they're all close to billionaires. I think there's several billion in that family. 
all the rest of them have the states everywhere and building this and that and the other thing, flying their own private jets and all that sort of thing. And this guy, he said, fuck that. That's way too much trouble. He doesn't want all of that stuff and all of the phone ringing every five minutes. You can't contact him by phone, hardly, unless you have his private number. He doesn't want to talk to anybody. He enjoys his silence. He enjoys himself. And he just wants a simple life. Huh? He's got 200 million behind him. No, he's a smart guy. So what? Huh? So what? Yeah, so what? Exactly. So what's all that money if, you know, if you're not, if you don't have that shanti? And his siblings, they're all running around and all neurotic and going to shrinks and, and having all kinds of legal problems and this and that and the other thing, you know, the problems with their kids and the whole business, huh? So, simplicity, minimalism, absence of egoism, uh, appreciation of time. You know, life's short. <laughs> you, you, your life goes by in, a, in an instant, really. It seems like a long time, maybe, but it's not that long. Yeah, and every day that you don't get to work on this, every day that you don't what set aside the time for this, uh, is a day wasted. You know, death's knocking at your door every minute. You never know. So, uh, so don't waste time. Get on with it. That's the idea here. Uh, absence of ownership. Do you think this is? Your body, your money, my children, huh? You think they're your children? It's not your children. <laughs> no more bigger misery than think this is my mother or my wife or my husband, huh? That ownership I want, huh? How would you take care of that problem? What well, what's the solution to that problem? Thinking about God. Yeah, Ishwara. Every single thing that you claim is yours is what comes from Ishwara. You know, if you if you if you take money from a bank to buy a house, say you you buy a half a million dollar house, you put down. Uh, $50,000 and you take out a loan for $450,000. That house is not yours. You say, oh, look at my house, don't you? That's not your house. That's a bank's house. No? And even when you pay off the loan, it isn't your house. Why? What part of it is your house? Every single thing that makes up that house comes from Ishwara. And what? It's borrowed from Ishwara and it's going back to Ishwara. Isn't it? So you say this is my house or my car or my job or my this and so forth and so on. And the, yeah, so that's another word you want. Not just I you can edit for, you can edit for the word mine. 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 <laughs> Don't touch me, your body. You think this is your <coughs> body? This isn't your body. You didn't didn't do one thing to make this body. 
You, you basically just borrow Ishwar's food to keep Ishwar's body alive. Huh? And, and, when, and when your Prarabdha runs out, Ishwar takes your body away. Well, actually, it isn't even your Prarabdha because Ishwar is what? Huh? Behind the whole thing, uh, generating your karma for you. So, <coughs> what? <coughs> what do you own? Understand? So, edit for the word mine. I and mine. Uh, okay, here's a good one. Absence of excessive attachment to loved ones. Now that doesn't. Now you're supposed to be attached to loved ones. <coughs> That's what love is. It's attachment. But what's the operative word here? Excessive. That's uh, it. Uh, the excessive means binding attachment, so that you can't be yourself or 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 you know uh, act out your own karma because you're too worried about what taking care of your whatever it is, whatever it is you love. That doesn't mean you shouldn't serve loved ones. When you serve loved ones, you don't think they're yours. Why not? Because you're serving them as God. Your loved ones are the Lord. So serving them is different from what? Needing them and being, clinging to them and being attached to them huh? and being unhappy when you're, they're not around. So... I need to look at my relationships to my family and my loved ones and so forth and so on and make sure I'm not excessively attached to them. Uh, sameness of mind. This is sameness of mind in all circumstances. Again, it's just monitoring the mind. Right? Having a value for a quiet mind. For a mind that's steady, that's not... Should have a, that. That should be a value. So again, it's monitoring the mind and seeing when it's rajasic and why it's rajasic and what and reducing the relative proportions of rajas and tamas in the mind until the mind is steady. It's clear and still and steady. So that's a that's a value for sattva guna. Sure to read the the guna book. Study it carefully. Tells you how to manage your gunas, how to generate sattva, so forth and so on. The value of Rajas, the value of Thomas, the value of these three energies and so forth. Explains the whole thing. It's a book that's never been written. That, that's the first time that book has ever been written. I just, uh, there's a lot of information here and there in the Vedic scriptures, in the Puranic literature about the gunas. But no one ever put it all together, and and uh, with reference to what, to <clears throat> moksha or self-realization and freedom. That's the first time in our tradition that's been done. So I just went through all the sources, uh, and collated it all, and then put it together into a simple, straightforward analysis of the gunas. It's extremely helpful. People, people write me all <clears throat> all the time that that book has had a huge impact 
on their sadhana. The beauty of that guna book is what? what? What's the beauty of looking at things from the guna perspective? It depersonalizes your life. <clears throat> That's why we say you go for the guna. In other words, in every situation, with every thought, now look to the guna, don't look, huh? Huh? because when you look to the guna, you, you can see that the gunas are responsible for everything, not you. Because the, the self is near gunaha. It doesn't have gunas. You don't have any gunas. And, but the gunas are Ishwara, and they're impersonal. So what does it do? It breaks down your egoism. It breaks down your eye and your mind. Okay? Impersonal knowledge of the energies that are operating in your mind at any time, what breaks down your eye and your mind, because you're not in control of those energies until you are. By studying the guna book and managing the gunas, you can gain a, a, a large degree of control over your mind. First you learn to recognize them, then you learn to understand how they're, how they're created through action, how certain actions create gunas, and then you can do the actions that create the state of mind that you want, and you can, have, huh, you can get your mind almost 80-90% controlled. There will be certain things you can't control. But you can generate a, an amazing lifestyle simply by managing your gunas. Even a worldly, anybody can do it. Because we're actually managing our gunas all the time, huh? or trying to manage our gunas all the time, but what? But the management is not done with knowledge of the gunas. It's uh, indirect knowledge. And so uh, you keep having to deal with the same problems over and over and over again unless you understand the science behind it. Once you understand the science behind it, then those problems go away. <clears throat> I've been managing my gunas since I was 27, and I have virtually no pain. I, I, I really don't have any pain to speak of. It's only because of the guna management. I talk to people all the time. I'm, I'm always astounded at how much pain people have, physical pain, not just psychological pain. But, but physical pain that people have, you can remove most of it with guna management. Unless, of course, you have a serious accident or something like that, and, and if you're some damage to your structural, your nervous system or something, then, then you know, it's more, much more difficult. Then you're going to have to live with a certain amount of pain. But most of the, the, the daily aches and pains that we feel and sort of the, the chronic pains that you feel are just a consequence of blocked prana. Uh, tamasic prana, tamasic shakti or tamasic energy blocking the nadis, the nerve channels that, that carry the energy. Behind the nervous system is a, is a shadow nervous system where, where the spiritual component of the nervous system is operating. And that, uh, that energy what informs the nerves and, and all the, the pipes, the nervous system and the vascular system that's operating it's uh, it's like a like a tree inside yourself with different levels layers of branches all spreading out to all the extremities 
And once you gain control of that, the prana, the shakti, then uh, and get your mind clear, then then Ishwar regulates the flow of everything and removes most of your disturbance. You don't get these blockages that cause problems in your liver and your heart and your this and your that and so forth and so on. So anyway, so uh, same as the mind. Uh, and what? Obviously, uh, you should have a value for what? devotion, non-dual devotion to God. In other words, you should keep the thought uh, that reality is non-dual, that all this is me, huh? that it's all me uh, in your mind this, uh, all the time. So that's called unswerving devotion. <coughs> Love of solitude. Everybody's most of the spiritual people have this fantasy of living in a cave, away from everything. Huh? Huh? Don't they? I live in the country. I finally got my cave in Spain. <laughs> it's really quiet. You, you, know, you can hear a dog bark five, five miles away. So quiet. No traffic, no people. It's amazing. Huh? Just, uh, why? You don't, because you you know you the, if your mind is quiet, then you hear the silence. Silence speaks. Silence speaks loud and beautiful. You don't even want to think. You don't want to, a, anything disturbing it at all. Huh? So <clears throat> so beautiful. <coughs> so love and solitude. Then gradually work toward it. You know, if you have a busy life, really busy life, <coughs> plot your escape. <clears throat> I don't know what this is. I don't have this. Anyway. Uh, and then, you know, companion value, absence of craving for company. This relates, all of them are about the same. You know. It's nice to have company. But uh, you don't want to crave. You don't want to sit home and wonder why nobody, you know, waiting for the phone to ring, invite people over and, and chit-chat. You want to have a full life, huh? but but you, you just, you know, don't want to crave that. You don't want to have that need for companionship or for people around. You should enjoy your alone time. <clears throat> Constant practice of self-knowledge is the same idea. I mentioned this every day, how consistently it should be. You, you, you know, 15, 20 minutes or 30 minutes on the scripture every day. If you've if you're been into Vedanta for a while, start writing a little something. Write some commentaries or translate a book, one of my books. Just spend, you know, spend 20, 30 minutes or an hour a day doing something like that. Just have a nice little spiritual practice every single day. It's the idea. <clears throat> a value for completing and resolving situations. Rajasic people always have a lot of loose ends, things that never get completed. The more rajasic you are, the more things that are, 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 un, are incomplete because you're too busy. 
so, so before you complete one thing, the phone rings and you have to complete something else. So you set it aside. I mean, this seminar set me back. I got three, about three or four things that are waiting in my computer that need to be done. And every day I try to get to them, but then more stuff piles up every day and, and it's bothering me. It's really irritating me. Understand? And, and this morning I was up early. I managed to knock off two of them, but there's still two more that have been, you know, nagging me because they're time sensitive things. And if I don't do them, then there's going to be more karma that could heal later on. So if I still got, I still got time to deal with them, but I got to get on it right away. And you know, you, you get this agi agitation. So, and the only reason is I'm agitated is because I have a value for completing them because I don't want more trouble. Because if you, if you just leave your karma uncompleted here, your karma is going to come back and bite you. Now, which is a great argument for not creating any more karma. <laughs> for reducing your karmic load. And karma yoga reduces your karmic load. That's what karma yoga should reduce your karmic load. That's the point. You come in with so much karma, you can either what? You can either add to the store of karma, you can keep the same amount of karma, you can replace the karma that you exhaust every day with other karmas, or what? Or you can what? Reduce the karmic load. The degree to which you reduce the karmic load is the degree to which your mind is peaceful. The degree to which you increase your karmic load is the degree to which your mind is agitated. So, it's a simple, straightforward formula. Huh? So I have a, have a value for completing things. Tomasic people don't want to complete things. Rajasic people want to complete things, but they're too busy doing other things to actually do the completion. So they have all kinds of uh, things that never get done. And so they're always agitated because they've not completed what needs to be completed. <clears throat> now here's one. Uh, this takes advantage of the natural value of Thomas. Precaution, deliberation, and restraint. Uh, it doesn't mean you're fearful. It means you know that things go south, and so you're cautious and deliberate in the way you do things. Uh, you take your time. Uh, you think about it. You think ahead, and you plan. You think, well, what can go wrong here? Karma yogis are great planners. Uh, why? Because they don't want to deal with unwanted karma. So they think everything through and plan it. They, they have, they have a, uh, a surfeit of what? <clears throat> of caution. It's a very, very good quality. So you should <clears throat> cultivate that, uh, that quality. It, it fits in with what we said before about deliberate thinking. You should deliberate. It's a deliberation. A judge deliberates. In other words, they, you, they think about both sides of the thing before they make a judgment in the courts. Their deliberation is the process. And restraint, a value for what? For holding back. When you're rajasic, you don't want to hold back. You just You just want to do it. The pain is... The pain of the desire is so much that, that you want to get rid of the pain, so you want to do the action that removes the pain. But here, what? 
Restraint means what? Restrain yourself from action even though it's painful. That's the tetiksha. Because huh? sometimes if, if you just hold off, you won't have to do the action. Huh? That's a nice thing. <clears throat> and you'll and if but if you can't if you're not deliberate and you can't what restrain yourself, you'll find yourself doing a lot of things you don't have to do. Just because those desires are gratuitous and they're tickling you, and you're so used to acting out your desires that you just act them out willy nilly. Whereas if you what if you restrain yourself and are deliberate and think it through carefully, a lot of those things will not need to be done and you can forget them. So you won't waste a lot of energy. And that energy will accrue to what? To your subtle body and your mind will become more calm, peaceful. That's the way it And so that's it. Then he says, um, now what about, what about negative feelings? What's the deal? How, how do you, how, how should you deal with negative feelings? He says, <clears throat> offering all activities. Now, we've been talking about actions and activities. Now we're going to talk about subtle body feelings. You should have a karma yoga attitude toward your feelings as well, not just toward the situations around you, but toward the thoughts in your mind. Because huh? there's, there's internal situations that don't manifest as external situations, i.e. feelings and so forth. So, he says here, offering all activities to the Lord, one should direct negative feelings, anger, desire, and pride to Him. Remember I was telling you about how some people hate me? And I said, that's good. Why did I say that's good? It doesn't bother me because it doesn't get to me. Because I've got an invisible shield. I'm the cell. So it comes right to here and then it bounces back. It never gets in. Understand? But it's good for them. Why? Because they're thinking about me. That's why. It's a form of love. It's a, yeah, it's a perverted form of love. Understand? And eventually that, uh, that negative will change to a, a neutral or a positive. It takes a long time sometimes, but I'm quite surprised. I have, it's really, really quite wonderful. Because some of the, the, you know, three or four of the people, I, there's about been more than like 10 people who really didn't like me in the last, say, 10 years. But at least three or four, about four of them have ch changed their views and have, have displayed love so that's like pretty good and maybe a few more over the time over the years will because that love it's hard to maintain that negative and uh and then you realize oh i'm thinking about that person because he or she has good qualities as well why huh you mentioned that yesterday that idea when you consider a person that you that you don't like, huh? You need to consider that that there are people who do like them, and they don't like him because he or she has bad qualities. They like him because he or she has good qualities. So it's just as easy to choose a good quality in a person to like as it is a bad person a, a quality. 
In fact, it's better. Huh? Why? Because thinking about a person's good quality causes good feelings in you, whereas thinking of a person's bad quality just magnifies your own bad qualities, so you're actually hurting yourself by thinking bad, thinking bad. There's an interesting French statement <coughs> uh, saying, Oni soit qui mal y pense. You know what that means? Evil be to he who thinks it. <laughs> In other words, evil thoughts are really what come back to you. They're really your thoughts. They're not somebody else's. It's never about the object. It's always about you. Oni soit qui mal y pense. Great, great statement. <clears throat> so directed to the Lord. Blame the Lord. If I got a negative feeling, I just give it to God. I say, this is your problem, Lord, you bastard. Why did you do this to me, you son of a bitch? How dare you? Don't you know who I am? I'm the great Ramji. You have no business doing this. Now get your act together and change this situation. I'm sick and tired of the way you're behaving here. Yeah, I do. I, 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 I scold the Lord all the time. Because <laughs> he's not behaving properly, according to my advice. And I'm his number one devotee. I tell him, hey, you should feel guilty, Lord, for God's sakes. Nobody looks after you like I look after you, and then you give me these problems. How dare you? Get it working on us. <laughs> it gets off your shoulders. It doesn't bother anybody else. And the, and the Lord is amused. <laughs> Transcending the gunas, one should act only out of pure love of God and remain perpetually in the relationship of a servant to his master or a lover serving her beloved. So this is a, this is a, a serve, uh, these are called love games. This is the this is the ideal love games. There's a number of love games. Now, what do love games mean? That means you convert the te the psychological template that's dominant in your love template in your mind uh, into a, a, a relationship with God. For instance, if your basic love relationship, basically love energy, is the love of a child for a parent, for instance, which is which is basically a lot of people. That that's where you get your 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 first conditioning, not from your brother or sister, or from your friends or or even strangers or something like that. Your basic first conditioning, that's your strongest conditioning, is you learn how to love your parents. Isn't that right? Well, yeah, it's right, because if you don't love your parents, what? You don't survive. You, you need to love your parents uh, or you won't survive. So, You've got a big incentive to love your parents. And so that becomes like a hard and fast samskara. And when you no longer have, in other words, when you're, when you're an adult and you move out of, away from your parents or when you're, when you're weaned, you don't necessarily become an adult, but when you're weaned from your parents or when you wean yourself from your parents, 
that psychological tendency to love a, an authority figure, huh? to love an, or hate an authority figure, hate is a perverted form of love, that psychological tendency doesn't go away. It's your dominant psychological trait. And then when you find your love, your dominant psychological love trait, emotional trait. So when you start to awaken spiritually, what do you tend to do? You tend to think of, of God as a big father or a big mother in the sky, your mother, father, God, and you as a, as, as a, as a sweet, innocent, humble child of God. It's a subconscious or an unconscious game that you play that you don't know you're playing. Well, that particular emotional stance, they're called bhavas that in Sanskrit, that particular emotional stance is not suitable for self-knowledge. Why? Because what? Because a child... Uh, may love his or her parents, but a child doesn't understand his or her parents, do they? They just worship because they have to, out of blind faith or obedience. They become obedient. So if your love of God involves the love of a spiritual teacher or a girl or something like that, then what are you going to do? You're immediately setting yourself up for falling into abuse. Because you'll see your spiritual teacher as your mother or your father, huh? and they will. And if they're they're undeveloped uh, spiritually, which most most or many of them are undeveloped spiritually, they will take the position of your parent huh? and use power and so forth and so on to what to dominate you and control you and tell you what to do. They, huh? There's people who are who are feel small and weak, and so their their desires for power. Understand? They, they they didn't they didn't have they don't have great self-esteem, so they work themselves into position of power so they can what <clears throat> feel powerful. It's a compensatory mechanism. It's called in psychology. It's compensation. So, but Vedanta now. Now, Vedanta recommends another kind of uh, template. It's called Vatsalya Bhava. Now, what does that mean? The worship of a parent for a child. Swami Abedananda, this one here. Hey, look, at he came right there just when I wanted to talk about it. <laughs> there he was. Huh? And he, he was the greatest, uh, greatest spiritual person I ever met, ever. In fact, my guru said, uh, he's the real deal. My guru was the real deal, but he said, this guy's the real, real deal. I'm just a third-rate spiritual businessman, he said. But this guy's the real deal. And in his temple in South India, uh, what did he have on the altar? Bala Krishna. Baby Krishna. Why? Because the, because a parent worships a child how? With love and understanding, huh? 
Not only does a parent love the child, but they understand the child and they have mercy and compassion for the child, don't they? Which is the perfect way to love God because it, what does it develop in you? It develops maturity. Whereas this other template, the child worshiping the parent, that keeps you immature psychologically and you don't grow. So you see in this Dwaita Bhakti world, in this, in this Dwaita Bhakti world, you see all these people are acting like children. Go look at all those people around Moji or Osho and these kind of people, Andrew Cohen, these kind of people. They're all like undeveloped, emotionally undeveloped, like children. They, 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 they trust the guru and do everything the guru says and allow the guru to treat them as if, as if the, he or she were their parent. But the guru is not your parent. The guru is your friend. That's another what? That's another bhava or psycho, psychological pattern. Because it's called sakya bhava that we encourage. Why? Because in the Vedanta tradition, <clears throat> that's called friendship. Friends, friends see each other equally. That's later on. Once you get out of the family or or in your family, you develop friendships which are outside the family. And those friendships, there's not a power component in those friendships, is there? There's equality. Even though you may have more or less uh, talents and abilities than your friend, it doesn't matter. You love your friend the same. You treat your friend the same. Huh? You share with your friend. There's an equality in that kind of love. And so in our scripture, that's how we that bhava is modeled in the relationship between Krishna and Arjuna. Even though Krishna, even though uh, our, our, Krishna is a fully self-actualized person, and Arjuna is just a baby spiritually, a spiritual baby, hmm? they they treat each other equally. And in fact, Krishna actually drives, takes orders from Arjuna and drives his chariot in the war, which a great man like Krishna normally wouldn't do. Uh, but but in, in the in the in the story, what does he do? It he, it shows that what he doesn't have any egoism, or he doesn't think he's superior to Krishna to Arjuna. He what he doesn't need to sit above Krishna and talk down to him, which is what most of the gurus do. They sit above you and talk down to you. Understand? I mean, I actually even need to sit on a platform, but I need to because. I can't see your faces. It only helps me to see your faces. But, huh? Because when I sit down, then I can, I, you, some people are hidden behind, and I can't tell whether the, they're absorbing the information or not. Whereas if I, and I try to get everybody all lined up so I can see their faces and see what they're understanding. Huh? So, <clears throat> Sakya Baba is, huh, is, is a, perfect kind of psychology for huh, for communicating knowledge because you don't want any fear involved in it I can tell people there's people who are afraid of me that's because they think I'm like their daddy they, they had authoritarian daddies 
And I'm, I have authority, but I'm not an authoritarian. I have authority because I'm good at what I do and I have confidence. And they project, they think, well, he's like my dad because maybe their dad's successful and a competent person and maybe their dad, you know, disciplined them in some kind of unfortunate way or, or fortunate way, just case may be. And so there's some resentments left over from their psychological conditioning, which they put, project onto their relationship with me. And so they're, they're, they're you know, they tiptoe around me. And they always say, okay, it's all right, and this and that, and the other thing, you know. Because, because of that psychological template that was developed when they were young. Another bhava is, is, is the husband and wife bhava. You can see see the Lord as your lover, as as a wife or a husband. That's a particularly tender and intimate kind of kind of relationship you can have with God. Or even another one called a passionate love of God. There is a passionate lover, or a forbidden lover. Sometimes you find yourself in a relationship with somebody, and you love them. But they don't understand your spiritual yearning at all. They may tolerate it. Uh, they may not even like it. They may, they may feel that any love that you give to God is love that they're not getting. And, and you don't want to throw away. You can't throw away God because you love God. You love yourself. So what do you do? You have a secret love affair behind their back. <laughs> you keep your mouth shut and you cheat on them with God. <laughs> and they don't know. So you, you do everything you do as a wife. Or, usually it's women that have to do this. Wife, wife or, or, you know, you do your wifely duties and your friends. You do all your duties in the house. And your husband never suspects that what? that you're actually in love with God first. Men are so stupid anyway. They're so, <laughs> so dull. They don't know anything. As long as you say yes, dear, no, dear, and put the food on the table and give them a little something on Friday night, they're, you know, they're pretty much satisfied. Love goes through the stomach. Huh? Love goes through the stomach. Yeah, yeah. Love, love goes, love goes so through how, the How do you know you are men? I know because I'm not a man or a woman. <laughs> That's the last thing I am as a man. I look like a man, but I'm not a man. I'm not a woman either. <laughs> and I'm not. What are the ones now that aren't men or women? He what is he? She or something? Yeah, they got they got some name now. He was. They don't want to be men or women, so they have a different name. I don't well, know. it refers to God basically. Huh? It refers to God. It refers to God. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So, so what what they're saying here is that you is to make you aware of your samskara. In other words, the way in which you express your love. What is your dominant way? And and when you become a devotee, then then it's com it's comfortable for you to love in that particular style. That's what we call it, styles of worship. It's comfortable, but you need to analyze what kind it is, because uh, because there are optimal styles of love. 
the, the love of a parent for a child, in other words, the love of God with understanding, not just with emotion. For Vedanta, you need to have that, that. That's a mature love. Or what? Or friendship love, which is equal love. Those are the two best for... Uh, and elements of passionate love are what? Should be there. That's called Mamukshutva. There should be a really strong desire. So God should be the sole object of your desire, and you should really be obsessed by God. We call it Mamukshutva, or burning desire for liberation, and it's one of the four qualifications for, for moksha. Uh, devotion with desire, devotion with And so finally, finally, uh, 60, 68, I think 68 is the next one, right? Yeah, it says, conversing with one another with their throats choked. This is just a little hyperbole, okay? Conversing among one another with their throats choked, hair standing on end, and tears flowing. Hair standing on end means horripulations. You know that feeling when, when it feels like uh, your hair is standing on your end, the, the energy goes through your body, and every every your hair starts to tingle, everything seems tingly. That's what that means. They call it horripulations in English. I don't know what they call it in German. Huh? Hair standing on end and tears flowing. The Lord's intimate servants purify their their followers and the whole world. Oh, I forgot that we, we left off the slave to a master. Now that's the highest form. Why is that? Because a slave has no identity of his own. Uh, the the Ishwar is the boss. The boss is the boss, and a slave has no identity of his own. Now, what does that mean? That's a state of a jnani, a fully self-actualized person. They don't need to be a person with a relationship to God other than that of a slave. They let God do everything. They know that God does everything, and they just do what they're told. Ishwara says, do this, and they do it. Ishwara says that, and they do it. Ishwara says this, and they do it. That's like a God's fool? What? A God's fool. Yeah, a God's fool. But there's a danger if you're a, if you a child, then there's a danger of confusing it. Yeah, that's right. If you're immature, then there's a real danger there. So this is this is all about what about looking to your own psychology and analyzing it. You can study this because I've explained the, the most of these psychologies in pretty pretty well, with reference to uh, bhakti yoga, reference to self knowledge. And what do they do? Those the Lord's intimate service purify their own followers in the world. This means guru, these these mahatmas. He's talking about mahatmas. Huh? Everybody's blessed by it because there's no selfishness there. There's no selfishness. So they see everybody as themselves, and they give themselves to whoever is in front of them equally. They don't distinguish one from the other they give. Because there's no sense of I and no sense of mine. 
everything is just the Lord. And everybody is just the Lord. And they just want to serve the Lord. That's it. It doesn't feel good to just take care of your, your stupid ego. At least that's for, for me. It just can't do it. It just doesn't seem right. You know, the Lord's so beautiful. Why, why would, who am I? What do I mean? I'm nothing. I'm just a, I'm nothing. I'm a fly speck. Why should I waste time pandering to my needs? It's so, so doesn't, it's cheap. It doesn't work. Um, what, and what do they do? They make the holy places holy, and they make our lives good, auspicious. And you meet these, that's why there are holy places, like, like Arunachala in India. There's a lot of nice mountains around Arunachala, but that one has a special quality. Why? Because people go there to worship for thousands of years, and what? And they leave there some of their love, there's some of their energy there, it gets incarnated in the in the environment, and you feel what you feel uplifted when you're there. You go to church; it's different from the going next door to the insurance company, huh? The church, isn't it? If you walk, the insurance insurance company is next door to the church. Why do Why do you feel spiritual and think of God in the church, and you don't feel spiritual and you think of what? You don't think of God in the insurance company. Simply because people worship there and people go there with full, full of fear, right? You go buy insurance because you're a fearful person. Uh, so, huh? so the whole experience is totally different, only because of the people have left that particular energy there. So they say they make the holy places holy and our lives suspicious. When you contact one of these persons, your life becomes better, becomes good. And what do they do? They justify the scriptures. They prove that what the scriptures are saying is true. You get to see a living example of the scripture there. So then you get more confidence in the scripture because you can see the guru is free. Understand? The guru has got that kind of <coughs> unconditional love. And so then you think, oh, well, he's a, always a normal person at one time. I can do that. That's not so hard. The non-dual, and then he says, the non-dual devotee is totally absorbed in God. Their ancestors become joyful. The gods dance, and the earth is protected by a good master. That means what? These are people who fulfilled their destiny as human beings. That's why it means the ancestors become joyful. The reason you came here is fulfilled. You understand why you came to earth huh? and, and, and makes everybody happy because then they know they can what? They can answer that who am I question, that what am I doing here question that we all have. We all have that idea. Don't you all wonder why you're here in this, this funny world in this strange meat tube? Huh? Everybody does. There's the moments when you're, uh, you say, Jesus, well, what am I doing here? Because uh, just in terms of what it is, this world doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? 
every they're just upside downside upside downside every step forward you make a step backward every step backward you make a step forward it's like treading water you never get anywhere you never win but you never lose and when you win you lose and when you lose you win it's just like oh my god what am i doing here so that should that's a basic qualification for uh for spiritual life then you say there's got to be a solution there's got to be a way out and that's when the teaching comes to you and shows you the way out and the earth and earth is protected by a good master it says here and what about these devotees these non-dual devotees there are no distinction among non-dual devotees in terms of social class education physical beauty family occupation and so forth because inwardly they are all equal in the eye of the lord then he says don't argue <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, huh? Yeah, but Ramji, yeah, but no, don't argue. Why? Because argumentation leads to excessive entanglement and resolves nothing. All you do is get yourself more caught up in your doubts. So accept it take the words of the scripture as the truth and and be happy he says here respect to revealed scriptures and follow their suggestions that the word is suggestions they're not telling you what to do they're suggesting so you don't have to have this mom and pop thing oh we have to do it because god says we have to do it god's <coughs> suggesting <coughs> And smart people will take suggestions. Smart people take suggestions. Dumb people uh, are too dumb to realize that the person's giving them some help. Understand? So they don't take suggestions. Or they've got that contrary to the ego. Who are you to tell me what to do? I know best. You know, all exceptions. Patiently waiting. <coughs> as the mind clears of emotionality invest your time in noble pursuits noble pursuits mean uh, the search for truth the search for god spend your time doing that and just you know just endure these emotional these negative emotional states you will get there don't don't be disappointed he's saying here those who are free of uh, free of doubts and when you are free of doubts when you know that you're the self you should what constantly and wholeheartedly worship the self <coughs> when glorified and so when you glorify the self what the lord swiftly reveals itself to uh, to its devotees and allows them to know him as he is in other words uh, the self ishwar responds to what to your emotional your devotional invocation your devotion invokes the lord and the lord shows itself 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 okay to you 
Devotion is the most precious asset of a sincere person. Although love of God of one is one, it manifests in 11 forms. And then he tells you how to recognize it. Reflecting on God's glory, appreciating God's beauty, worshiping God, remembering God, serving God, communing with God as a friend, caring for God in a parental way, interacting with God as a lover, surrendering everything to God, especially doership, absorption in contemplation of God, and cherishing separation of God, being happy when you're, I can't see God, then you're fully complete. Then you're the self, aren't you? So, so, and then he says, therefore, so, so it is universally declared by the great Vedic uh -huh. teachers who share the same views on the topic of devotion. Anyone who has faith in these auspicious teachings will attain non-dual devotion. See that faith? You need to have that faith. You've got to stop questioning and accept the teaching of the scripture. It's as simple as that. It may take you a long time, but just stop doubting it. Take these words as the words of truth and accept them, he says. You will attain non-dual devotion. Indeed, he or she will in day attain unconditional love. Om Tatsasana. Okay, good. Okay, very good. Sure to keep it up. I'm sure you will. Thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, to communicate with you. It's been most lovely. Absolutely, you're a great group, and uh, you made me. You loved me, and I tried to love you. <laughs> to the best of my ability. <laughs> And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, meet, meet again sometime. If you have doubts, you can write uh, myself or Sundri or somebody. <coughs> and uh, I have a Skype chat by donation. If you get stuck, you can make a donation to the web and, 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 write, and email me, I mean, and we'll set up a Skype chat. And... Uh, uh, I can help maybe help you clear your question or your doubt, whatever it is. But you should be good to go. So take it easy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.